first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I really do appreciate it. Um, I come from a family of, uh, of Gush alumni, alumni not, not myself. Uh, we, I am uh, one of four brothers, and all of them went to the Gush except for me. I went to Malad Uh So, you know, I, I betrayed the, uh, the tradition, but uh, it's okay. Uh, they, they make do with me too. Nevertheless, I have, uh, have a significant affinity to this yeshiva, for this yeshiva, and uh, I'm very, very happy to be here. Uh, I'm going to get right to it. What I'll do is, um, I think, since I have until uh, 6.15, correct? Yes, but that's a yes. Yeah? So what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll speak for about, let's say, 30, 35 minutes or so. We'll start there. If there are questions you know, or comments, great. You know, if not, I'm happy to continue talking. Um, what I want to do is share with you a little bit. If you're happy, I'm um, What I want to do is uh, share with you a little bit of my experience uh, in this issue, talk a little bit about the questions. And the most important thing really is to air out some of the things that come up. Um, because honestly, you cannot imagine the kinds of questions that you could theoretically get with regards to mental health. I could not imagine them either. I started this process about six years ago when I started receiving some questions about mental health. And then when I went uh, online at some point on Facebook, it was about uh, half a year or so after I started looking into this, and I asked um, for examples of questions. I got about 50, 60 examples of questions that you, ba- you basically, there's no literature on them. In other words, I'm not saying you can't answer or no one has ever answered them, but there's almost no literature on a lot of these questions. And as a result of that, people don't know the answer to the Shaila, but more than that, and I'm going to focus on this throughout my uh, talk today, they don't feel supported throughout their challenges. And that's the most important thing here, really, is that when we answer Shailas, we also get to feel supported um, we get to support those who are going through those things. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me take this step by step with you. Okay? What are halacha and mental health shadows? What kind of shadows are we talking about? So let me give you like a brief rundown of questions, okay, that I get just to start to, for you to understand. So there was a question about OCD and mikvah, sure. But OCD, of course, can <coughs> range in other, other areas as well, whether it's OCD and saying brachas. Um, davening and OCD, you know, could be uh, something, washing hands and OCD. You know, OCD can pervade many, many different areas of halacha. When Pesach comes along, OCD could be significant uh, for people who need to clean up and this and that. You know, also always worried about chametz b'mashu and so forth and so forth. So OCD can definitely be an issue. But not just OCD. Can, if I'm suffering from depression or anxiety or borderline personality disorder, or um, eating disorder. Can I listen to music on Shabbat? That's a question I get a lot. It's a, it's a very prevalent question. You know, chances are that there are people right here in this room who have dealt with that question. And it is something, like I said, that I deal with on a constant basis because people really need the help during Shabbat. And I will get back to that. Um, can I journal during Shabbat? Sometimes people need to write down things whether it's uh, to focus on their eating for those with eating disorder, to write down their diet, what they've ate, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or just to journal in order to be able to deal with what's going on. I know a woman with borderline personality disorder 
who desperately needs to journal on Shabbat. Can she do it? Can she not? You know, what will be the result of that one way or another? Do I need to respect a parent who has uh, abused me, whether it's physically, sexually, uh, verbally, emotionally? You know, is there a kibbutz avahem? Is there an ability to do bizion avahem even? You know, like to degrade uh, them, you know, even to that extent. I got a question like that just this, just this past week. I think it was a Monday. Someone called me and asked me, you know, they uh, have a parent who uh, comes over and, you know, exacerbates their mental health, their children, me- children's mental health. They act in ways that are very hurtful, very damaging. Do they need to have them over? Can they say, we don't want you over anymore, even though it'll hurt the parent you know, and, uh, and so and so forth. Um, I even had a question about, do I need to pick up my parents from the airport? I assume that anybody here would say, oh. what child would ask whether they need to pick up their, their parents, why not to pick them up from the airport? And of course you pick them up, okay. So obviously there's a history there, and there's something going on, right? Keep it up, I am a big thing. Autism, all right, those with autism. A lot of times, they, when, when, uh, when the kids with autism are young, Many of them, about a third probably, are, about, are non-verbal. I don't know if you've come across that. When they are non-verbal, many times they use what's called assistive technology, which is basically today, it's like a, a tablet, you know, where they can press on different uh, pictures and things like that to say what they want, food, drink, etc., etc. You know, can that be used on Shabbat? Kashmir issues for autism, okay? Many, many children with autism have trouble waiting, trouble with patience. Okay? They can't wait six hours, or at least they'll start freaking out if they're waiting six hours. Can we go to three? Can we go to one? Can we, you know, what can we do in those situations? Okay? Uh, in the postcards, where many of you will probably be going back to, uh, questions of kashrut in, in certain mental health programs is an issue. Here, less so, because everything usually in institutions is kosher. But the postcards, many of the programs, especially eating disorder programs, don't keep Shabbos, don't keep kosher, you know, can I send someone to an eating disorder program if that means that they'll have to give up on the laws of kosher? So, I've given a few examples, okay, of uh, these sorts of things. You know, we can talk about eating disorders and fasting, and we can talk about the nine days and depression, and we can talk about so many things that come up. Uh, and I will give a few practical examples soon, but I hope that gives you, a, first of all, like an understanding of the kinds of questions that uh, come up. What's the problem with answering these questions? The problem with answering these questions is that there is no clear, uh, I would say, definition um, or corpus of definitions for mental health and halakha. When you look at Orachayim Shin Kafchet, which is the simon in the Shulchan Aruch that deals with physical health and Hilchot Shabbos, then you will see that there are five Categories, and I'm doing this schematically and quickly, right? But from Bari through Michush Alma, through Cholesh Enbo Sakana, through the Sakana Tavar, all the way to Cholesh Yeshbo Sakana. There are five different categories, and the post can use them in order to determine what the halacha should be for every single kind of case. But do we have anything in the over 40 seifim of that siman? Do we have anything about mental health? Maybe seif lamed hey. A halacha that has to do with neshifat ruach ra, sourced in the shibolei haleket, and brought down over there by the Shulchan Aruch, and uh, the Horm to discuss it, maybe that discusses mental health. But generally, in over 40 of the Shulchan Aruch, there are no discussions about mental health. What is a chole she'en bo sakana from a mental health perspective? What is a chole she'yesh bo sakana from a mental health perspective? 
With regards to physical health, we have more or less based understandable guidelines. It's more unclear when it comes to mental health. And so the first thing that I needed to do when, when, when addressing this issue is to come and say, okay, what are we defining as such? And the people who call me have the same problem. Because you've heard of stigma, of course, okay? A lot of people practice what's called self-stigma. It's not just that society doesn't always believe that they're really sick, it's that we don't believe about ourselves many times. And we're not willing to accept it. Because we've been given the message, and I understand it, you know, that willpower, if you have enough willpower, you can do it. I mean, without trying to say anything negative about, uh, about Harat Zion or any other yeshiva, my yeshiva is also like this. Yeah? The message you go when you get, when you get, it, you get when you go into yeshiva is you need to work hard. And the message you get is you can do this. Yes, we have a very demanding schedule, but you know, it's mind over matter. You, know, you, can, you can handle this schedule. You can learn 24-7. 24? Okay, fine. You can learn a bit less than 24-7. 18-7, 17-7, whatever. A significant amount of hours in the day. You can put the effort in it. You can do this. Right? And that's kind of like the kind of message we get from parents and from society. And that's a, it's a good message. It gets the message in and of itself. I do believe in hard work. I do believe people should apply themselves. I do believe in excellence. I'm not trying to say we should all be mediocre. But when a person is suffering mentally, that message can be harmful. When a person is suffering, what they need is sympathy. They don't need someone to come and tell them, music on Shabbat, come on. You can't get through 25 hours without music. Come on, you can, you can do this. You can do this. Now, they can't. They're really, really, they really can't. They're really suffering. It's not just they're complaining a little bit. Because some people say that to me in these talks. How can you tell the difference between someone who really needs it and someone who's just like lazy or complaining or things of that sort? I didn't write a book for, for complaining. I don't write a book for complaints. I don't write a book for people who just like don't feel like doing something. And by the way, that's not the people, those are not the people who come to me. If someone, if someone's uh, personality is such that they don't feel like doing something, they're not looking for a rabbi to justify it. They know that they're they know that they're a bit lazy, they know that they're not interested or whatever it is, and, and okay, you know, that's that's fine, that's their that's their personal struggle, it's nothing to do with me, and I'm looking for a head there. People come to me when they're in distress. People, people talk to me when they care about the halacha, but they also want to feel what I'm told. If they didn't care about the halacha, then they wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't ask me about it. Sometimes people say, how do you know no one's like, you know, tricking you and getting a hetero when they don't deserve one? I don't even understand the question so much, yeah? Because if you're a mental health professional, I can understand trying to scam your doctor for medication, telling him a story in order to get some pills or something like that. But how can you scam someone for a head I'm not even sure. What, does a guy like leave my office afterwards and say, aha, I'm not really depressed, you know? Like, okay, well, if, you're, if you're not really depressed, then that's on you. You know, like, if you're using a head when you don't deserve one, I don't even know what you think you're doing here, but it doesn't really apply to you anyway, so. So I don't think that that's a reality. I don't, I don't really address, you know, s- such things seriously, because I don't think anyone comes to me trying to get something out of me that they don't deserve. It's obviously... Only when they care enough about their spirituality but are suffering significantly from a mental perspective that they, that they uh, try to find me or try to find someone who can, who can, ask, who can answer these questions. So, so the distress is real. The distress is real. 
I don't want anyone here to doubt that. And like I said, you shouldn't doubt it about yourself if you're going through something like that either. What you're going through is, is absolutely real. It's there. And 100%, you should be honest with yourself about whether you need a head there or you can get through it. Like I said, there are five categories in Oral Chayim Kafet. And category number two, which I mentioned before, was Michosh Be'ama. Sometimes, physically, you have a background headache. You can get through it. You don't have to take medication on Shabbat. Yeah, you'll pull through, right? If, sometimes I get like a bit of a background headache on the fast days. Does that mean I break my fast? No, I don't break my fast. I can get through it. I can pull through. But some people can't. Some people, they're bedridden as a result of that. It's not a background headache. It's a migraine. It's serious, right? So once again, people start self-doubting and do I really need and this and that. I mean, of course you should be honest with yourself. But if you know you're suffering, then you're suffering. And don't doubt that. And don't be afraid to say, I can go on like this. Because maybe you can't. And maybe you need help. And like I said, people who are suffering, depression is an example, okay? From depression, it, they can't get over it any more than anybody can get over cancer. They, they need real help. They need someone outside, a mental health professional. They need therapy. They might need antidepressants. They might need something. Those are real problems. Real problems. So all that is to, once again, give a framework for our discussion. Okay? Because, once again, a lot of people start thinking to themselves when I talk, why is he talking about this head there or that head there? Is it really so necessary? And the answer is, yes, of course it's necessary. That's what I'm talking I'm not talking about cases where it's not necessary. I'm talking about real issues. Now, let's get our halachics straight. Okay? I'm, um, I, I wrote, a, as you know, a book on the issue, and there I brought all the sources and discussed them you know, at length, but I'm doing, making it short but sweet over here so we can talk about real cases, so I'm just going to give you the, the basics of the, of the definitions. A cholesheh, well, a healthy person is a healthy person, you know? Uh, so, Bari, we know what that is. What's a cholesheyeshbo, second on the other end of the spectrum? So, in my book, I mentioned three different categories. One, one uh, category for cholesheyeshbo, second is those who are basically in a situation where their physical health is a cholesheyeshbo, second They're physically, okay, in danger, and their mental health might affect their physical health, okay? That's case number one. Case number two is someone who might hurt themselves or other people, suicidal um, uh, thoughts, obviously, you know, that sort of thing. Someone who might hurt themselves or other people, you know, those as a result of their mental state, those individuals should be considered a Holoshi Yeshbo Sakana. What about a third? Third category is the actual Shtut. So I'm not going to go right now into the category of Shote, but in broad strokes, psychosis, mania, okay? Both of those situations, either psychosis or mania, could be considered a chole shi yesh So if someone is in that situation or is will deteriorate, deteriorate into that situation, then you can stop it by doing something. That's a chole shi yesh And in those situations, even the Deoraita is allowed, if someone is in danger of going into a psychotic state or is in a psychotic state, but will not hurt anybody and you can wait till after Shabbos to take him to the hospital, you break Shabbos to take him. Because he's a cholish yesh Getting him out of the psychotic state or the manic state at that moment is important. Ah, oh, but we can wait. You cannot wait. You cannot wait. Even though he won't hurt anybody, he won't hurt himself, doesn't matter. Yeah, you can't wait to take him to get what he needs, take him to the ER, etc., etc. Yeah, and besides that, you can never really know. But even if you could know, that's a cholish yesh um, what about a sakana evar, which I mentioned before? It's complicated. I'm not going to go into it so much. I had, a, I had a many discussions 
uh, with a few rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer Malamed and Rabbi Shumais and uh, Rabbi Sakshaymat from Aladamin, about the category of Sakana Devar and whether we can apply it also in mental health context. Some people were, shall we say, more enthusiastic, some people were less enthusiastic. I think also, if I remember correctly, I had a discussion also with Rabbi Schechter about it, um, and he was more supportive of the idea, but whatever, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated um, halachic category to apply. At the end of the day, I tried to stay away from applying it, so I'm not going to go into it here uh, as well. Okay? Uh, what is that? It's a very important category. Because what I see with a lot of the chubas that are out there is that they always try to bring it to Cholash Yash Basakana. And I understand that because Cholash Yash Basakana is, like is an easy category. Like, oh, you could take his own life, right? Not everything is suicidality, though. Not everything is suicidal ideation. Not everything is really dangerous. A lot of things are just distress and pain and suffering, which is significant. But not everything can really be... I understand the, the desire to like get to a, like a safe place from a halachic perspective and say, ah, once I define it over there, but then it doesn't really fit reality. And number two, are you not stretching the halachic um, uh, category into a place where it becomes a little bit ridiculous? So, therefore... I think we need to discuss seriously the possibility of a Polish and Musakana, what that would mean. Once again, in broad strokes, what that means is functional consequences. I'm sure you guys have heard of the DSM, uh, the, basically the Bible of psychiatry, the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Right now we're in version 5, so the DSM 5, uh, almost in every one of the uh, disorders mentioned there, talks about functional consequences. Meaning, what is the tachlas? When someone calls me and says, you know, like I said before, can I listen to music on Shabbat? Yeah? So I say to them, can you describe to me what you're going through? So they describe many times their thoughts. So I I say, okay, you know, I I needed to hear that, I wanted to hear that, but now I want you to describe to me not just your thoughts and what's going on in your head, but how does it affect your day-to-day? Explain the functional consequences. Are you not able to get out of bed? Are you, you know, not able to go shopping? Are you not able to go to work? You know, what happens? What's the difference in your day between having music and not having music? What does your day differ? In what ways does your day differ when you don't have the music? Etc. etc. Say anybody we need need a question. Many couples, when the husband or the wife has depression, um, need a hug. Sometimes to get through a depressive episode. You know, and um, and they call and they ask, can I have my husband or my wife give me a hug in those situations? So it's a neater question. It's complicated, you know, because, uh, you know, enemy truck in Be'arayot, you know, supposedly not even to, but Erevah was saying, Yahari Be'ar it's not a simple thing. Supposedly Shabbos questions are easier in that sense. You know, but, okay, the question is what can or cannot be done. Um, but yes, basically, you know, uh, we need to understand that the difference, before I even go into the halakhic answer to the question, the difference many times between a hug and, the not, and not having a hug is the difference in being able to get out of bed, take care of the kids, go to the, go to the store, make dinner, make Shabbos. Yeah. A hug can do that sometimes, yes. Sometimes the support that you give is that. To be, so just to be clear, when I give a head there, it's because I know that it will help the person on their trajectory of getting better. 
I don't just give a hint there because I feel bad for them. Like, oh, you're suffering, so here's a, here's a candy. You know, like, you listen to music on Shabbat, right? No, I'm talking about whether the heter will help the person to get better, whether the heter will help the person to advance in terms of their general direction. And if I don't give the heter, whether the person will deteriorate in terms of their trajectory. That's also something to consider. Okay? So with all such questions, right, what do we do? We first determine on what level the prohibition is, their right to their abandon, etc. We apply the categories that I just outlined broadly, you know, to the situation, because if it's a holoshe and bosakana, then we'll only allow the rabbanan to be bushino, and maybe not bushino, depending on the situation. If it's a holoshe yes, well, we could do the writers as well, right? And we'll see according to the situation. Sometimes people say to me, aren't you afraid of a slippery slope? So the answer is, first of all, in general, I'm not such a huge fan of the slippery slope argument. Yeah? So I'm not so worried about slippery slopes in general. But besides that, let's say I was deathly worried about the slippery slope. I always say there's almost no xerots. There's almost no, no... People usually don't use that logic when it comes to health. We don't say, you know, how can we allow... Right, think about it for a second, right? Every Shabbos, I don't know, thousands of women, I don't know how many, thousands of women break Shabbos going to the hospital because they're giving birth. No one thinks, well, if we allow them to just like break Shabbos to go give birth, the next Shabbos they'll just break Shabbos for some other reason. No, we don't say that because we figure they know the difference, right? This... This week it was to give birth. Yeah, that's why we allowed it, and we didn't think twice about it. We're not gozer on it, like because some, then someone might assume, you know, etc., etc. I'm not saying someone couldn't assume. To be clear, someone says to me, I know someone that you gave a hint or two, and then they misused it. I'll tell you something. I also know people like that. Yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Of course it could happen. All right? But, even though it could happen, we're not worried about that. We have to pass in for the person who's in distress at that moment. We have to pass in for the person who's suffering. We have to give the person what they need in order to, according to halakha, of course, in order to get through whatever's going on. And could afterwards it be misused? I remember when I got a, I remember when I got a, a smicha, my yeshiva in Maladunim, so I think, it was, I think it was Rav Yaakov Ariel came to speak at the Chag smicha that we have in the yeshiva. And he told us a story. He said, uh, Someone once came up to him and said, I heard that the Rav, Yaakov Ariel, I heard that the Rav uh, allowed to drink camel milk. A camel is a tummy animal. I hope you know, you're not allowed to drink camel milk. Okay? So Yaakov Ariel said, I allowed to drink camel milk? That's great. The guy said, I heard in your name. What, ha- what, what happened? Of course, it was a specific, you know, medical scenario. It was a whole Sakana. You know, the person they asked, the doc, doctor said, you know, this could be the help, and he allowed it in that specific scenario. Afterwards, word got around, you know, and someone somehow heard that he allowed to drink camel milk. Be- because of that, he shouldn't have passed in the original tab. Uh, things can always get around. Things can always be said. You know, mistakes can always be made, and heterim can always be misused. That's not, no, I'm not saying that that won't happen. Of course it could happen. And like I said, I've heard from people that I've passed into who say to me, I think I went overboard, you know, with what you told me. But first of all, they have a lot of times, they're thinking about it, right? In other words, they, they come back to me and they say, do I really still need the hand tear? And maybe I went overboard with it. And, you know, okay, so we'll, we'll tweak the, you know, the care, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But once again, just because you're worried that someone might overdo, I don't think it's not a reason, I don't think it's a reason not to get hand tear. 
with, with uh, except for one gzera, shchikatsa memanim, which I'm not going to go into right now with regards to refuah, there are no gzera on refuah. There, usually we don't say those things. Usually we say, we're not worried that someone might do something. We're generally, we generally allow people uh, to uh, go ahead with their care, assuming that it's all pihalacha, of course, you know, and according to the guidelines. Okay, so that's about that. I think that the most important thing, and this is the last kind of like introductory, in a sense, comment that I'll make, and then I'll give you some real cases and we'll talk about those. I think that the, that the most important thing to realize is, and this is said at the beginning, is that we're supporting people through a very, very difficult time. Okay, like, I don't know if you understand that even, like, uh, I'll explain it. The psak is just the... It's just like the tip of the iceberg. It's not really the, not even almost the most important thing that I do. <coughs> when someone with fever, right? I, I don't know how it is. What's a high fever in Fahrenheit? I don't know. I use Celsius. What, what's, a, what's that? A hundred. Okay, fine. That's a, that's a good number. Okay, so you got a what? No, hundred. What hundred slow? Hundred and two. Great. Okay. So you have a high fever, okay? In Celsius, we'd say 39, okay? But whatever. You have a high fever, and someone said, and, and the person with a high fever says, you know, I'm suffering on Shabbat, people will take that seriously, right? To, honestly, it doesn't matter to me whether the person is in bed with a fever or with depression. They're in bed, and they can't go anywhere. So to me, the reason that they are incapacitated at this point doesn't really matter. To me, they're a holy and when I say that to the person, they feel seen, they feel they're not transparent, they feel their pain is real, they feel that Halacha sees that and views that and understands that. They feel like they're part of the community. And that is the big thing that we're doing here. Seriously. This whole pass-spinning thing, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. You know, I'm like, great. But what's the difference between me pass-spinning on this and someone pass-spinning on some other issue? Chelet, or korbanot, you know, etc., you know, or other things. What does it matter? Everyone has, like, meshugal adavar, right? So I decided to, you know, pick this, like, niche and to, like, you know, focus on it. Great, but why do people care? The answer is because it's not just about the psak halacha. It's what the psak halacha means to the person. They feel like they are part of the community, part of the religious community. They can continue to be part of the religious community. I cannot tell you how many people who are no longer religious have written to me since my, my beginning of this project about like I said, five, six years ago, how many have written to me, you know, I wish I would have known you 20 years ago. Like, they're not religious anymore. And it's too late for them, right? But they, like, they tell me how their mental health struggles led them outside of, outside of religion. It was incompatible for them. It was incompatible to be also religious and also to care for their mental health. And what I'm saying is it's not incompatible. And I always emphasize, it's not about a head there. It's not about being lenient or stringent. The people who call me don't want leniencies. The people who call me just want to be heard and seen. Seriously, if they, if they wanted leniencies, they would just do whatever they wanted to do. What they want to know is that there's a place for them with their struggles within Judaism. And they want, many times they want, a, they want a homer. Many times they want you to say, look, you can't just do whatever you want because they want to feel like they're still being the kind of mitzvahs. Think about it for a second. What do we say about stigma? Stigma shames people, makes them feel ashamed. And if I tell someone not to fast on Yom Kippur, will they feel ashamed? Absolutely. You're reinforcing their self-stigma a little bit. 
when you tell them not to fast. Now I would. Someone with anorexia called me and said, do I need to fast on Yom Kippur? I would say, don't fast. Many times I would say, don't fast. Not always, but many times. Don't fast on Yom Kippur. Does that help or hinder them? It's hard for them to hear that answer. Many people told me before this past Yom Kippur, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. Don't, I don't, don't tell me that. Tell me I can fast. You know? People want to fast. They want to be religious. They want to feel part. And when, they, when you tell them they should fast, they start asking other kinds of questions. Does God hate me? People ask me that question. I'm a... My father, you know, went to Russell Vajic's class. I'm a brisker. I don't answer questions like, does God hate me? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, I don't know what God thinks. It's not my style. Yeah? But, uh, but, with, but when people ask me that question, I need to answer them. Seriously. And the answer, by the way, is no. If you're wondering what the answer to that question is. The answer is no. Yeah, it's always no. I always tell people God does not hate me. But they do ask me those straight up questions. Does God hate me? Do, am, I really, am I still orthodox? Am I really part of the, of the community? Now that I'm not keeping Shabbos like everybody, not fasting on Yom Kippur, like, you know, etc., etc. What's even left for me? You're like, what makes me religious? What makes me Jewish? What makes me connected to Hashem? You know, it's very difficult. People are looking for that connection. And like I said, me paskening for them is, is 20% about the psak, yes, but it's 80% about me as a rabbi, I brought them into the community. They're part of the Orthodox community because I've given them a psak and they can continue to tend to their mental health while also continuing to understand that they are part of, part of Orthodoxy. You know, so it's, it's, it's that. It's very, very important for them to be seen. A young girl called me up. Jean called me up. She left me a WhatsApp message. Eight and a half minutes. Right? It's a long WhatsApp message. How much? How much? You put on double time, right? If it's eight and a half minutes. You don't do that. You can't listen. So anyway, anyway but um, eight and a half minutes. Um, she, she's in America. I was here. I got up in the morning. I found this message. She was crying, crying through the whole thing. What was the story? She has a DID, what's called dissociative identity disorder. She dissociates. She loses time. Okay, she does things and she's not aware of it. She wakes up the next morning and she finds out she doesn't remember the entire past evening. Okay, so she she left the message. She was crying through the whole thing. Like I said, she said that while she does not remember the previous evening, um, she nevertheless her phone remembers what she did, and it was very. She didn't tell me exactly, I don't know. She slept with someone, she ate tray, I don't know what she did exactly. Um, but it was clearly very, very bad and very non-orthodox. Um, and she was beside herself. That's not a halachic shayla per se. Because right? obviously, what's the, what would anyone here say? I would assume you'd all say the same thing that I would say. You weren't uh, cognizant of what you were doing. You weren't conscious at the time. It's, uh, your body was doing things, but your mind wasn't in it. I mean, like, what? Uh, you're an us. You know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not on you. And you'd be right to say that. And she knows that too. She, did, she, she, she did send me that message because she really thought I was going to say that she's, you know, she's now going to hell for it or anything of that sort. She didn't think that I would say that. But she wanted to know that she's still part of my community, so to speak. You know, she wanted to know that I accept her. She wanted the support. She asked me, so to speak, a halachic child. Yeah? 
Right? It wasn't about that. It was about asking the Shaila and getting the response. It wasn't about the content of the response, which she already knew, I think, before, what I would say. You know, but it's, it's that. People go through a lot of difficult times, and they need that support, and they need that help. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what we need to do. Let me put it to you differently. We need to normalize the conversation and normalize the psika around this issue. Look, for the book, I went to 14 different postkin. Okay, I did that because that I make sure that the book would be accepted, not for me, but for the mitmodedim, for those who with mental health challenges. It wasn't, I didn't do that because I wanted to get my name out there. I did it because I knew that if my name was on it, then with all due respect, people would say, who's Yoni Rosenzweig? And you're like, I don't, it's a great book, but like, who is this guy? Yeah? Okay. So I understand that, and that makes sense to me, but I want people to, I, I want people to follow the book. I want the book to be helpful to them. So therefore, I, I work and try to get Sika from significant posts. You know, and I went all, all throughout the Orthodox spectrum, because no matter who I went to, there was always someone who didn't like that person. You know how we are in the Orthodox world? Yeah? Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter. You might think, oh, but that rabbi everyone agrees with. Not true. Yeah? It's uh, just every, every single person. It's unbelievable. Yeah? Like, uh, you know, Rav Eliezer Malamed, half the world, you know, whatever. If you call Sherlow, he's too liberal. Yeah? Even Rav Asher Weiss. I was at uh, some place. Would you ask? Rav Asher Weiss. You asked Rav Asher Weiss? Are you crazy? You know, so, you know like... Okay, everybody has uh, stuff. I don't know what to say, yeah? I think that all these people are Baruch Hashem, they have wisdom, and they have, they, they, they're Chachamim, you know, but the, that's how it is, right? So I could just ask one posek, and everybody has their person that they respect, you know, so I went to, I already mentioned, I went to, went to a chef room of Willing as well, you know, to talk to them and get their psukim for the book. Rav Weiss, I mentioned, Rav Ariel, Rav Dov Lior, Rav Yuval Sherlow, Rav... Baruch Gigi here from Harvard Zion and uh, Rav Rehma Cohen from Mokniel and um, my Rebbe before he passed away Rav Rabinovich Zetzal Rav Henkin Zetzal before he passed away I also had the occasion to sit with him um, and uh, it's fun to name drop right anyway so the point is the point was just to say that uh, you know the the importance for me of that was once again to make sure that I mean obviously that was getting it right but it was also to make sure that people were, were getting the information. But the reason I mentioned it was to say that when I went to the post to discuss these issues, it was clear that some of these issues were new to them, which is fine. I'm not criticizing the post Like I said, I treasure every moment that they gave, that they give me, that they gave me. Um, but yeah, these questions are new. These questions are unusual. We need to normalize the understanding around these things, or the, normalize the psyche around these things. Right? And to understand that these things are not strange. When people know that they're not strange, they'll avail themselves of those things. Look, I was speaking to uh, a group of uh, what they call in my community, Bichemish, 55 pluses. Yeah? So one day you'll get there too. I'm, I'm, I'm close. I'm, I'm uh, 42, so 13 more years I can join the group. Um, so 55 plus, we were there. I was there, I was talking, there was a rabbi, used to be a rabbi in a community in America. And he said to me, you know what I did, he, after I gave the talk, he said, you know what I did in my community in America? You know, I said to, he said to me, I want to tell you how I made people feel comfortable on, on the fast day. I said, okay, how'd you do it? He said, I put a table in the foyer, in the lobby, and there was a little, before Yom Kippur, 
And I, I put little cups of oranges. And on top, on top of, like, above that, I, I put a sign. It said, If your doctor has told you that you need to drink or eat on the fast, you know, you must do so. I said to him, it's a very nice story. I said, but if I did the same thing, if I put a table with little cups of oranges, and I said, if you have anorexia, you can drink, you know, etc., no one would get anywhere close to that table. Yeah? Meaning we're nowhere close to normalizing our response to these issues. And by the way, that's true also in a yeshiva framework. And once again, I don't know what happens here. It's not criticism about this yeshiva. I look at myself. Okay, I'll talk about my own yeshiva. Okay, so when I was in Shir Aleph, are you Shir Aleph? What are you? Sorry? I'll bet. Okay, okay. When I was in Shir Aleph, okay, I'd like to think, I mean, I have to ask my, my, uh, my the people who were with me, okay? I think I was a pretty serious guy, all right? So I, uh, you know, I would stay in the base, I would learn. And there were some guys that I looked at and I was like, they're not as serious. Yeah, they're not always in the base, they're not always learning. You know, etc. They disappear for certain, you know, periods of time from the state, etc., etc., etc. And not knowing any better, I said to myself, you know, they're just like not as serious as I am. You know, like they're not. They're, maybe they're a bit lazy. Maybe they're maybe yeshiva's not for them. What are they even doing here? Maybe they should go elsewhere. You know, like this this environment's not for them. It's not that I think that there aren't such people, but I know that I was judgmental in that sense. In what sense? In the sense that. Maybe the person just had ADHD. Seriously. Maybe that guy, right, that I was critical of, was actually coming to Shiva despite significant hardships, right, and was trying to put himself into an environment of excellence where he could achieve more. And he was doing his best. He was doing his best. But he needed, he needed more breaks than I did. Yeah? Great. So I, I'm like an automaton. Wonderful. I'm like a robot. I could just sit and learn. You know, wait for me. But it's not the same for everybody. Some people, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not encouraging laziness or not working hard or any of that stuff. I'm talking about real difficulties that people have. Maybe they just had those difficulties. What do I know? What do I know what he was going through? And those individuals, right, who despite their difficulties, they go to yeshiva, and despite their difficulties, they put their heart into it and they do their best. And yet, despite that fact, because they don't <laughs> reveal what they're going through, they're looked at as less than. Imagine what that does to the psyche. Imagine what that does to the person. Meaning he's putting his heart into it, and he's still everyone thinks he's not as serious as the serious guys. He's working harder than the serious guys. He just doesn't achieve as much. That's true. But he's really working hard. So what do I know? Or that could be those kids who are just lazy. Don't get me wrong. It's possible. But I'm saying, you know, how do we know? So a girl told me about her experience at Midrash. It's the last story I'll tell, and then I'll open up for questions if you have more comments. A girl told me that she was in Migdalos. She had an eating disorder. She had to eat on Yom Kippur. Once again, imagine that. You guys have been here for Yom Kippur. You know what it's like. It's unbelievable. I was, also, I was in yeshiva for eight years. Yeshiva and Yidrashah environments are unbelievable. The power, the energy, the singing. And she's in the room eating. How does that feel? How does that feel to a person? And let's say they don't tell anybody. She just walked out of Yom Kippur Davin. Where'd she go? We're all standing here all the time, davening. She disappears for half an hour. Now. So not only is she dealing with significant, now everyone's also looking at her like, 
you know, you could you really couldn't handle it. Like, what's what's the big deal? You know, I can handle it. So we don't know if we normalized it, if we talked about it like it was like it really was around because it really is around us. Then we could also get the support of the community that we deserve. Those of us with mental health challenges could get that support, wouldn't feel weird, wouldn't feel strange, would feel more comfortable to be in these environments. People would respect the kind of effort that they're putting in to achieve their level of excellence, whatever that may be. And we need to be sensitive to those things and understand that so long as the stigma persists and so long as we don't put, that, put, our, um, put more understanding out there, people will continue to suffer in silence many times and not get that support. So, I'm going to stop here for a second, let you guys maybe ask, ask or, or comment, and if you don't have anything to say, I'm happy to keep on talking. Yes? Thank you for the presentation. Give me a new perspective on the And I really agree with you that many of these issues are very acute and need to be addressed. One difference that strikes me um, between mental health um, and physical health not in 90% of the cases, but let's say there's that 10, 5, 10%, where mental health diagnosis is more subjective um, sure. than um, physical health diagnosis. And you, you addressed already the part of, well, if it's patient-reported, we can move patient reports, because what's the use of a head there anyway if the patient's going alive? Um, but what about issues where um, we judge, like the DSM might be judging mental health, might come from a certain... Um, which might be different than the 100%. So the answer to that question is complicated, okay? It's a very good question. I'll try to really just touch upon it because I can. There's a lot to say about what you just asked, okay? But let's, let's understand for a moment, okay? First of all, I always say to people, I do not diagnose. I only pass it. So... If someone, you know, uh, the APA, you know, put together the DSM, you know, whatever's in there, right, that's what I work with. Why? Is it Torah Messina what the APA says? No, it's not Torah Messina. Yeah, but that's the best that we have at the moment. Is the DSM-5, uh, you know, also uh, fueled by certain agendas? For sure. There's a lot of stuff there, and I'm aware of it, you know, and you should all be aware of it. It's not gospel. It's not like, you know... Obviously, you're right. Yeah, there's a lot of agendas within the DSM. Things that made it or things that didn't make it are not purely um, uh, uh, scientific. So why do I allow myself to rely on it? Two reasons. First of all, I remember speaking to my Rebbe, Robert Dinobri-Sitzal, and I asked him, Ha'im efshal yismoch with regards to mental health. Can you rely on the doctors? You know, because it's subjective, unclear, there's a lot of questions, you know, so how do we know that we can rely? And his answer was, I don't know if you ever heard Rabbi Nobuk speak or whatever, he was a very, he was, I had a very close relationship with him, so it was a fantastic post, but it was also very grounded, yeah? You know, it was like, it was the, basically the opposite of a Lichtenstein, who would give you like long answers and, you know, analyze the different sides. It wasn't like that with Rabbi Nobuk, he would just tell you like one line and that was it, Yeah. So, Rabinovich, the Talmud asked him that question. He said to me, um, Yeah, of course you can rely on them. So I said, Why? So he said, No choice. In other words, what he was saying was, That's the medical establishment today. 
Yeah? In other words, what are you going to do? What, what, what criteria would you use? Okay? What, what are your other choices? Whatever the doctors say, that's what you have to do. So, number one, fine. But number two, okay, and more to your point, okay? I don't care about the diagnosis. Not really. And by the way, neither does the mental health professional. What do I mean by that? If you come, if I, if, when I first started asking questions, okay, for the book, so I would come to a mental health professional, I would say, listen, I, I have a question for the book. I want you to tell me what you think from a medical perspective. Let's say someone comes to you with depression and they want to listen to music on Shabbat. What would you say? Now, when I asked the question that way, what do you think the mental health professional told me? He said, I can't answer that question. Why? Because depression, what's depression? That word is so general, it means almost nothing to me. You can't just say to me, a person has depression, what would be the psalm? What the heck is depression? Looking at anhedonia? Lack of sleep? You mean suicidal ideation? You mean, like, what are we saying? Yeah, tell me the history. Tell me the presentation. Explain the behaviors. You know, tell me what's, what's going on with this person. What medication are they taking, etc., etc., etc. So every case is very different, right? So therefore, the, the terms, whether it's bipolar disorder, or borderline personality disorder, or bulimia, or anorexia, you know, or all these things, they're just words. On their own, they don't mean much. What do they do? They give you direction, right? If someone told me, if someone told you they have depression, you would think, I don't know if you would, but I'm, I would think, okay, I wonder if they have suicidal ideation. That would come to mind. If someone told me they have OCD, I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't necessarily go towards suicide. I'd be like, they have other issues. Suicide is a possibility with OCD. I'm not saying it's not, but it's less prevalent and not the first place I would go. So therefore, the names give us a direction, a place to look. They shine a spotlight on a general area. But what you're really looking to understand is the case. So my point to you is, okay, at the end of the day, the diagnoses, they don't mean anything to me, per se. I don't pass them according to a diagnosis. The diagnosis prods me in the right direction to say, how much is this person suffering? And suffering, I, don't, I can quantify that in Allahic terms. I don't need the diagnoses for that. I can quantify the suffering in Allahic terms in the way that I explained before. So therefore, at the end of the day, I'm not dependent on the diagnosis. But they do help to point me in the direction of what I'm looking for. Is that clear? Yeah. Um, you said um, like someone who, uh, uh, like at, one, at some point, would be like bed rest, like where they, they, they their mental health. Bed rest, is, yeah. Their, their, their mental health is so that they can't physically do anything. Sure. Is that, like you said something for Shabbos though, like, is that like a halachic category? Is that not, I'm not saying like, let's say, like let's say they'll eat or drink, and they're not in the state of where they, well, they might just like not feel like eating anything, they might be sad and, or something like that. Is that point allowed to break like some type of halachic barrier? These are terms, right, that are used within the halacha in regards to Hilchot Shabbos, right? You said the word sad, so it's a little bit misleading because you're saying, what if he's a little bit sad? So once again, we can all say, like, a little bit sad, what's the big deal? Yeah? Like, cheer him up. Yeah? But it's not like that, right? So someone with depression, assuming that it's clinical depression, you can't just cheer him up. It, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's not so simple. Yeah? Uh, sometimes they need very specific things. It's also, some of this also has to do with understanding the mechanism. All right? When I say music, I understand that you might think that what I'm trying to do is cheer him up, but that's not at all it. It's not like he's depressed 
aka sad, so I'll give him music, happy music, he'll be happy. That's not it. What I'm trying to do is get him out of his head. Okay, I'm, I'm working on doing this schematically. People who are depressed are living in here. I'm sure there are people here who know what I'm talking about. You live inside here, and you keep on living inside here, and you, you torture yourself inside here. Okay? So, so nothing that happens on the outside can really touch you, because you're not living on the outside. You're living in your head, and you torture yourself. And everyone tries to help you, and they can't. And so you start feeling like you're a burden to society. Because, what? come on, my family would be better off without me, let's be honest. You know, they come in here to the room, try to get me out of the bed, you know, etc. Day in, day out. It's been months like this. You know, and I'm not getting better. They're just like worried about me. They're already, you know, they'd be better off without me, right? So I just did that very schematically, right? But over months, yes, of depression with no care, a person can get to suicidal ideation. Because, yes, a person feels like they're not sad, like they're hopeless. Okay? It's not about cheering them up. It, music helps because for a little while they can get out of here and not have those thoughts rattling around in their head and not have this whole depressive sort of thing just weighing them down. You know? Like I say, depression or many mental health issues, it's not like jumping off a cliff, it's like sinking in the mud. It's slow. All right, it's not, it's not a one-shot deal. It's very slow. And therefore, many times you can't see it right now. Like right now, he needs the head there. He doesn't seem like in any danger. You're right, because he's slowly sinking. But if you give him a head there, then you can start pulling him up a little bit, or at least stop the sinking. Enough for him to go and get the help that needs therapy, etc., 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 and get out of this mess. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Yes, the person is in bed. Right? He's not functioning. That's, it's not just about that moment. We're, we're thinking broad. Do, do you know what I'm saying? About this. Yeah? That person is nafal and ishkav. He's in trouble. We need to get him out of the mess. That's what I'm saying. Okay? Yeah? Um, so how would a pose, first of all, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. This is absolutely amazing. Um, how would like a pose, um, in regards to halacha and mental health um, issues like yourself, address an individual who perhaps never you know, sought advice, never sought help, but evidently from an outsider perspective is, um, is putting himself in kom sakana in order to be mekhaim exposed. How would you address that? And perhaps uh, like a professional, a professional opinion being brought would, could be you know, compelling to, 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 to take him out of that position, or how, how would that be addressed in any sense? I'm not sure what you're asking so much. Like, there, he, he's putting himself in, in a dangerous situation because of Allah. Huh? So, so then, someone who perhaps is not, um, is, is, has not sought advice, but you can tell evidently he's, he's putting himself in Kum Sakana because he wants to be Mekhaim exposed, and perhaps you know, convincing him to take up on a hedger would, would, would save him. I'm saying so, of course, that's what needs to be impressed upon him. You know? Look, I always tell people, like, you know, it's not just Mutar, it's Mitzvah. In other words, we need to tell people, this is your allowed. Sometimes they'll be you're allowed to do this and this and that. I think they get a part feeling from me. You know, so when I see that, I tell them, I want to make it very, very clear, you have to do this. Yeah, it's, the, it's a mitzvah to do this. You're doing the right thing when you do this, not just allowed. You know, so, yeah, of course, people do things like that. You know what? I've seen it. People are, t- do I need to fast? So you don't need to fast. After the fast, they call me, I fasted, and now I deteriorated. So I said, okay, that's not good. You know, like, I tried to impress upon you that you don't need to fast. You know, and you went ahead and did it anyway because you thought it would be fine. You know, now you're back with your eating disorder. You're back doing very negative behaviors, you know, etc., etc. Of course, to impress upon people. Yeah, and then, yeah. If someone knows of a 
friend that's struggling with these things. Obviously, we should create a general environment of openness sure. and acceptance. But what are some like specific, concrete actions that would be very beneficial? This is great. Seriously, not just me. I'm saying in general. Okay, this is great. You know, to have like talks like like these. Um, you know, discuss these things openly. Make sure that it's clear. I always, when I go to communities, just give one example because I want other people speak and the time is running out. Just one example. I always say to people, think of the small talk on at the Shabbos table. That's my that's one of my tests that I say to people to think about. Right? If you're sitting at the Shabbos table and someone comes and says, "Did you hear so and so has cancer?" Then people say, "That's terrible." Is he, is, he, is he already at, did you already see an oncologist? Is he going to get chemotherapy, radiation? What's the course? How many times, right? Notice how I'm not a doctor, but I know all those little small talk things that I can say in conversation and address the issue. It makes people feel comfortable when people know the lingo around what they're going through and they know that people will treat them and ask the right questions. But when someone says, same story, scenario, did you hear so-and-so has depression? There's an awkward silence at the table many times. People don't know what to say now. What is he even supposed to do? Regular GP? Does he go to a specialist psychiatrist? Is a psychologist? Does he need pills? What's supposed to happen? Can he get rid of this? What questions are we even supposed to ask? I think a lot of people don't even know how to small talk about mental health. And to me, that's indicative of the fact that it's not normalized. So I would say, if you're in your community, get a mental health professional to get an evening together and just talk to people about how to talk to people with mental health challenges. What are the right things to say? What are the right things to ask? You know, so, so when you see them at the, in, in the street suddenly, you're not like falling all over yourself and swallowing your words. Uh, how are you? Uh, what, what, what do you say to someone who has depression and you suddenly meet them in the street? What's the right thing to say? What's the wrong thing to say? We don't know. I didn't know until five, six years ago. Seriously, because I never learned about it. And I'm sure I said wrong things to people. And I'm sure a lot of people in this room don't know either. That's okay. You know, but you can learn. And I think that will help to normalize some of the things. Yeah. Nice question. And then you guys can walk me out and you guys can ask questions. Yeah. Why? I'll let you. Uh, uh, so to what degree can somebody who is, can somebody who isn't the, the individual with a mental health disorder help, what, what, what does Allah give them to do to help somebody? For example, somebody, you don't have a mental health disorder, but you can be helpful to somebody on Shabbos. Sure. So to what degree can they do something? Great question. Generally the same. In other words, the same as, as the person can do. Okay? Um, but it's a really... Sometimes it can be a tough question. I'll give one example, just to address what you're saying, okay? Which was new to me. It's a question I got this from Kipper. Um, it was a new question. Okay? The question was like this. It was a young girl. She had anorexia. Okay? She obviously needed to eat on Yom Kippur. There was no question about that. That, that was the easy part. Okay? But she had just started a diet plan, and she was just getting better. She was just starting it, okay? And the way that they were going to help her also, you know, is that the, all, always the family would sit and eat with her together. And they were worried because they, she had never eaten alone. They were worried that if they didn't eat with her on Yom Kippur, that she would not be able to eat on her own. So if they were all in shul, right, and she was alone eating, you know, to eat her, to go through her diet plan, they weren't sure that she was going to go through with it, right? So she obviously has to eat and if I say she has to, has to eat, I believe that that's pikuach nefesh for her to eat, right? Can other people sit with her and eat as well? So if I'm, if I'm serious about it being pikuach nefesh, I suppose the answer would be yes. But that's not a simple question, right? So what did I actually say to the person, right? So first of all, you can always say, well, maybe there are other people who need to eat. Maybe an older grandfather, you know, etc. Maybe a young kid who's anybody eating. 
they could sit and eat with them. You could make that. I also said, maybe it's not about, you, they've never tried this before, so they don't know. I said, maybe she'll be fine. But also, maybe I said, maybe it's not about sitting and eating with her. Maybe the mother can stay behind and show. Just sit with her and, you know, do the process and be with her, you know, etc. Obviously, I'm not going to say, sure, you can eat, you know, because it's not simple for me to say to someone who is not in that situation that they can eat and give her. But if all else fails, if they're in in real time, if she's not eating unless someone else eats with her, I would totally say to eat with her. Yes, I would have said that. You know, I told, I told them that as well. But I said try everything else first, you know what I'm saying? But it, yes, I do, I am serious about anorexia being pikuach nefesh, and so absolutely, I would tell the other person to eat as well. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for giving us this informative talk. A lot of things to think about.